You can't be neutral on the moving train. I told y'all before. You can't believe everything that your teacher tell you. Who is your teacher? Your teacher just learned what they was taught. How do you know what they was taught was correct? Yeah, I mean, dig into the real history of this country and the fact that it was built on blood. You can't be neutral on a moving train, train, train. And that was an excerpt of the song Writings on Disobedience and Democracy by Vinnie Paz. Welcome to You Can't Be Neutral. This is a political podcast inspired by Howard Zinn and progressive and radical activism, taking a look at society, media, and politics in the U.S. and beyond. You can follow on Twitter at YCBNeutral. You can find out more. You can check out all the back episodes at youcan'tbeneutral.com. You'll also find a link there to send me a message and some links there to make a donation. You can make a one-time or recurring donation to keep this podcast free and independent. You can't fight fascism by expanding the police state. We won't reverse the damage done by Trumpism, like the attack on the Capitol, by doubling down on authoritarian policies like surveillance, policing, and censorship. We need to address systemic injustice at its root. This is a piece written by Evan Greer and published at FastCompany.com. Democracy is in crisis. Donald Trump and his enablers have intentionally emboldened violent white supremacists for the explicit purpose of attempting to overturn an election. The storming of the Capitol building, organized publicly and advertised for weeks, is just the latest deadly result of politicians weaponizing a deep current of racism that has coursed through this country's veins since its genocidal inception. This is part of who we are as a nation whether we want to admit it or not. In the coming days and weeks, we are likely to see pundits and lawmakers call for things like passing a new domestic terrorism law, expanding mass surveillance programs, increasing funding for the FBI and law enforcement, installing backdoors and encrypted messaging apps, and arming police with more technology like facial recognition and social media monitoring software. We're also likely to see renewed attempts by the government to curtail freedom of expression, including misguided attacks on Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. This is the exact opposite of what we need to be doing. Expanding the U.S. government's already bloated surveillance state will only bring more terror and harm to the same communities that Trump targeted with his racist policies and rhetoric. More money, weapons, and technology in the hands of the Department of Homeland Security, an agency complicit in human rights abuses long before Trump took office, won't stop the rising threat of right-wing violence. Instead, it will be used to suppress legitimate dissent and disproportionately target black and brown activists, Muslims, immigrant communities, and social movements that effectively challenge systemic injustice and corporate power. President-elect Joe Biden has already expressed that he supports the creation of new domestic terrorism statute. Experts warn that a new law isn't needed. Acts of terrorism are already illegal. Creating a new designation would fail to prevent right-wing attacks 
while threatening marginalized communities with increased surveillance, prosecution, and harassment for engaging in First Amendment-protected activities. In the last few years, top Democrats and Republicans have called for billions of dollars in additional funding for the FBI and have scuttled attempts to rein in the phone and internet spying programs, enabled by the U.S. Patriot Act, which was rushed through Congress faster than lawmakers could read it in the immediate wake of 9-11. These mass government surveillance programs, ushered in during a moment of national crisis, were billed as a temporary measure necessary to ensure public safety, and we need to ensure that lawmakers don't repeat these same mistakes now. Two decades later, there is almost no evidence to suggest that they have ever actually saved a single human life. But bulk collection and monitoring has a documented chilling effect on freedom of expression. The FBI has gone even further in recent years, creating a specific, quote, black identity extremist designation used to target black activists and the failed Countering Violent Extremism program that primarily infiltrated Muslim and immigrant communities. The full force of the U.S. government's surveillance state was brought to bear this summer as uprisings sparked by centuries of systemic racism and police violence swept the country. Police used stingray devices to intercept organizers' calls and texts, while the military and border patrol deployed drones and planes to monitor protesters from the sky. Federal agents snatched people into unmarked vans. Police deployed tear gas, concussion grenades, rubber bullets, and worse. Law enforcement officers even rammed protesters with their vehicles. Little of these militarized tactics and equipment appeared in the roughly three hours it took to clear the Capitol building this week. Even though the FBI is known for years that right-wing white nationalist violence was a significant threat. It was clear from organizing efforts online that a crowd of Trump supporters, neo-Nazis, and QAnon believers were headed toward the Capitol earlier this week. But Capitol Police failed to stop these acts of white supremacist violence, not because they were unprepared. It's because law enforcement as an institution in the United States exists primarily to uphold the social, economic, and racial power structure. They're on the same side. The storming of the Capitol was organized in plain sight. It was egged on by the sitting U.S. President and several members of Congress. No amount of additional surveillance could have prevented it. It was not lack of intel that led to this massive security breach. It was a systemic cultural and political unwillingness to take the threat of white supremacist violence seriously. Law enforcement claim again and again they need encryption backdoors to prevent attacks. Meanwhile, these attackers were live-streaming and posting selfies as they went. With five people dead and many more wounded inside the halls of Congress, social media platforms, including Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, announced they would suspend Donald Trump's accounts. Many feel this was a necessary step, that Trump's posts had approached the, quote, fire in a crowded theater line. Many feel like it's too little too late, and focusing only on high-profile accounts misses the point. We can and should have robust debates about the content moderation practices and failures of big tech companies. 
and we should hold them accountable for the ways their surveillance capitalist business models are doing harm. We desperately need omnibus privacy legislation that stops companies like Facebook from harvesting people's data and using it to micro-target hate and lies directly into the minds of people most susceptible to them. At this point, it's clear that an immediate industry-wide moratorium on artificial algorithmic amplification, that machine that supercharges far-right recruitment and disinformation online, would be more than appropriate. But one pitfall lawmakers should avoid is any attempt to impose government-mandated speech restrictions on social media platforms. More specifically, lawmakers should reject attempts to exploit the crisis Trump created to further one of Trump's top goals, gutting Section 230, a foundational law that makes it possible for websites to host the content, posts, videos, photos, memes, and opinions of ordinary people. Some Democrats have already taken aim at 230, incorrectly believing that creating carve-outs in the law would incentivize web platforms to do a better job at moderating dangerous content and misinformation. In fact, Section 230 is what's making it possible for these private companies to suspend Trump's account for speech that, while clearly dangerous, may not technically be illegal. And rushed changes to 230 would almost certainly do more harm than good. The last major change to the law, SESTA-FOSTA, has been widely regarded as a disaster that triggered widespread internet censorship and put sex workers' lives in danger. Section 230 is one of the most important laws protecting human rights and free speech in the digital age. Messing with it would only solidify the monopoly power of the largest tech companies, and it might actually make it harder for them to prevent abuse on their platforms. If it were repealed entirely, it would lead to mass suppression of anti-racist and anti-fascist social movements, which are clearly needed now more than ever. It would make it harder, not easier, to combat the corrosive ideologies that propped up Trump and defined his agenda. In a split-screen moment, as Trump's cult following descended on D.C., major news outlets called the Georgia runoff election. Democrats are about to control the House, Senate, and the White House. They will assume control of the government in the midst of a crushing pandemic and at a time when millions are on the brink of unemployment, homelessness, and food insecurity. The new administration and Congress should resist the urge to rush through legislation or enact headline-grabbing policies that claim to respond to right-wing violence while reinforcing the systems that foster and enable it. Instead, they should listen to the communities most harmed by Trump and his supporters' actions and enact meaningful structural changes that begin the work of addressing systemic injustices at their root. We can't fight fascism with authoritarianism. We can't combat groups of violent white supremacists with policies based in the structural white supremacy. We won't reverse the damage done by Trumpism by doubling down on Trump's most tyrannical instincts. Instead of letting politicians exploit our fear to expand and supercharge oppressive institutions, let's work together to dismantle them. 
And that brings us to a double dose of Facebook news and more than earns Facebook this week's names and addresses intro. One of the first times I talked to Judy Berry on the phone and I had never met her, I said, Judy, you know, the earth is not dying. It's being killed. The people who are killing it have names and addresses. What I mean by that is through power structure research, through hunting very carefully, we can find out the names and addresses of the people who really have their foot on our necks, the people who are really causing the damage. And then nonviolently, my vision, my dream is that thousands, thousands, millions of people go to those homes, go to the places where they shop, go to the places where they take their vacations, sit in the doorways, lie in front of the cars, and when they're hauled away to jail, other people take their place. Surround them, put them in jail. Oh yes, I know it's an air-conditioned jail and the food's pretty good, but they're in lager, they're surrounded, like it, like in uh, Montreal, uh, like at Genoa. They're behind the barbed wire, they're behind the concrete. We've got them in prison, we've got to understand that they're afraid of us, all right? Let's make sure that they can't enjoy their ill-gotten gain. First up is an effort to stop Facebook from rolling out a newly announced uh, potential policy. This piece is written by Yumna Patel. It's published at mondoweiss.net. Human rights activists launched a campaign this week to stop social media giant Facebook from adjusting its hate speech policy to classify the word Zionist as a protected category, a move that would make any criticism of Zionism a violation of Facebook's community standards and hate speech policy. And before I go on in the story, this is part of a massive and massively successful effort by Israel and its supporters to criminalize speech criticizing Israel. You see it all across the U.S. and state after state after state that have passed laws that say if you want a job in the state or if you want to maintain a job in the state, you must sign a, 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 a document that forbids you from supporting the boycott, divest, sanctions movement. Back to the piece. The campaign, entitled Facebook, We Need to Talk, was launched in response to efforts from Zionist organizations backed by the Israeli government to get Facebook to consider Zionist a proxy for Jew or Jewish. Facebook is in the process of assessing if posts of a critical nature on their platform that use the term Zionist, quote, fall within the rubric of hate speech as per Facebook's community standards. Jewish Voice for Peace, JVP, said in a statement released Wednesday, adding that Facebook would be making a decision by the end of February. If Facebook does decide to equate Zionism or Zionist with Judaism or Jewish, it would penalize any criticism of the ideology and Zionist policies on the platform a move that groups say could disproportionately affect Palestinians who criticize Israel's policies in the occupied territories. Quote, The proposed policy would too easily mischaracterize conversations about Zionists, and by extension Zionism, as inherently anti-Semitic, would harm Facebook users, 
and would undermine efforts to dismantle real anti-Semitism and all forms of racism, extremism, and oppression. The petition, which had over 17,000 signatures as of Thursday, says, If Facebook were to start penalizing criticism of Zionism on its platforms, quote, this would shut down conversations about accountability for policies and actions that harm Palestinians, the petition says. Importantly, this move will prohibit Palestinians from sharing their daily experiences and histories with the world, be it a photo of the keys to their grandparents' house lost when attacked by Zionist militias in 1948, or a live stream of Zionist settlers attacking their olive trees in 2021 and it would prevent Jewish users from discussing their relationships to Zionist political ideology. The petition goes on to note that many people who perpetuate anti-Semitism and racist tropes that are harmful to Jewish people, for example, white supremacists and Christian evangelicals, are actually people who explicitly support Zionism and the State of Israel. Along with JVP, the petition is undersigned by groups like Independent Jewish Voices Canada, the Boycott Divestment Sanctions Movement, and the Adala Justice Project. Seven Amle, and I have no idea if I'm pronouncing that the way that it should be pronounced, but it is the number seven, A-M-L-E-H, the Arab Center for Social Media Development, one of the undersigned groups urged Facebook not to be, quote, swayed by the powerful interests of governments and organizations, and resist enacting policies that deny Palestinians and other peoples living under the occupation or oppressive political regimes from enjoying their basic human rights and digital rights. Seven Amle warns that changes to Facebook's community standards that make Zionists synonymous with Jewish would deprive people of their right to freedom of expression and inhibit them from documenting and describing human rights violations and sharing stories that accurately describe the daily lives of Palestinians and the violations committed on an ongoing basis by Israel and the Zionist movement, the group said in a statement. In recent years, Zionist organizations have worked hand-in-hand with the Israeli government to pressure countries and global institutions to adopt the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance working definition of anti-Semitism, which labels criticism of Israel and Zionist policies as anti-Semitic. The IHRA definition has been adopted by the European Parliament and over 30 countries worldwide including the United Kingdom. In 2020, 120 right-wing Zionist organizations sent a letter to Facebook urging the company to adopt the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism as the, quote, cornerstone of Facebook's hate speech policy regarding anti-Semitism. Facebook has a history of cracking down on Palestinian activists on its platform and for years has worked with the Israeli government to deactivate the accounts of Palestinians under the pretext of preventing, quote, incitement. Last year, Facebook closed the accounts of over 50 Palestinian activists and journalists, saying the profiles did not adhere to the platform's community standards. Rights groups, like Seven Amle, have documented hundreds of cases in recent years of Facebook shutting down or restricting Palestinian accounts. In comparison, the group says that Israeli incitement against Palestinians on the platform is rarely censored. 
And like I promised another story about Facebook and its censorship practices. This one was written by Andre Damon. It's published at WSWS.org. Facebook purges left-wing pages and individuals. On Friday, Facebook carried out a purge of left-wing anti-war and progressive pages and accounts, including leading members of the Socialist Equality Party. Facebook gave no explanation why the accounts were disabled or even a public acknowledgement that the deletions had occurred. At least a half-dozen leading members of the Socialist Equality Party had their Facebook accounts permanently disabled. This included the public account of Genevieve Lee, the National Secretary of the International Youth and Students for Social Equality, and the personal account of Niles Nemeth, the U.S. Managing Editor of the World Socialist website. In 2016, Nemeth was the Socialist Equality Party's candidate for U.S. Vice President. Facebook also disabled the London Bus Drivers Rank and File Committee Facebook page, which was set up with the support of the Socialist Equality Party, UK, to organize opposition among bus drivers. This follows a widely discussed call for a walkout by bus drivers to demand elementary protections against the COVID-19 pandemic. None of the individuals whose accounts were disabled had violated Facebook's policies. Upon attempting to appeal the deletion of their account, they received an error message stating, quote, We cannot review the decision to disable your account. With no explanation or warning, Facebook has effectively seized the intellectual property of those it has targeted, cutting them off from years of their photos, writings, and online discussions. Also targeted was the Socialist Workers' Party, SWP, in the UK. Its main national Facebook account was disabled with approximately 20,000 followers, together with its student group, the Socialist Workers Student Society, with approximately 5,000 followers, as well as its annual Marxism Festival, with 12,000 followers. Additionally, entire branches of the organization were disabled on Facebook, particularly in Scotland, as well as the Facebook accounts of individual members, according to SWP representative Lewis Nielsen. Quote, This has been a concerted attack on us, Nielsen told the World Socialist website. Following widespread protests on Twitter and other social media networks, Facebook reversed the ban of the SWP's main page, although the pages of a number of local branches and members remain offline. The attack on leading members of the SEP and other left-wing organizations is a calculated act of censorship the behest of the state and ruling class, to silence opposition. These actions are part of a years-long campaign to create the framework for censorship in the United States and internationally. Such acts of censorship are a desperate response to the growth of popular opposition to inequality, social misery, and the ruling class's disastrous response to the COVID-19 pandemic, which has put profits above the protection of human lives. The World Socialist website has for years warned about the crackdown on left-wing political organizations by Facebook, Twitter, and Google. Since the 2016 election, the U.S. intelligence agencies have advocated internet censorship in the name of fighting fake news. While these actions have been presented as targeting far-right conspiracy theories, 
They have in fact disproportionately affected left-wing anti-war and socialist organizations. In 2017, Google announced that it would promote authoritative news sources over alternative viewpoints, leading to a massive drop in search traffic to left-wing sites. The World Socialist website editorial board chairman David North published an open letter to Google on August 25, 2017, demanding that it stop the censorship of socialist anti-war and progressive sites. Quote, censorship on this scale is political blacklisting, North wrote. The obvious intent of Google's censorship algorithm is to block news that your company does not want reported and to suppress opinions with which you do not agree. In congressional testimony this past November, Google CEO Sundar Pichai was asked, quote, Can you name for me one high-profile person or entity from a liberal ideology who you have censored? In response, he acknowledged that there had been, quote, compliance issues with the World Socialist website. Facebook and Twitter followed Google's example, removing left-wing accounts and pages with millions of followers. Friday was a new milestone in this campaign, with Facebook systemically removing the entire social media presence of a left-wing organization on the same day that it erased dozens of other accounts. Notwithstanding our differences with the Socialist Workers' Party, we unconditionally defend its right and the right of its members to have unfettered access to social media and demand the immediate restoration of all their accounts. It is essential for all left-wing organizations to be able to freely express themselves in order to clarify the differences between them and to allow workers and young people to make up their own minds. There must be a unified response by all left-wing organizations against this type of censorship. It is precisely in this situation that the historic slogan of the labor movement must be brought forward. An injury to one is an injury to all. We urge all supporters of the Socialist Equality Party and the World Socialist website to vigorously protest all those targeted by Facebook. We urge our readers to make public statements on every platform available to them, protesting the censorship of both members of the SEP and SWP. We call on workers at Facebook and other technology companies to register their protest against this action and demand that it be reversed. In order to coordinate and take forward their struggles, workers must have unfettered access to information. As they enter into struggle against the corporations and financial oligarchy, workers must take up the demand for the defense of freedom of expression and opposition to Internet censorship. Next up, a piece by Caitlin Johnstone, mainstream media already using Capitol Hill Riot to call for more Internet censorship. You can find this at caitlinjohnstone.substack.com. This was written on January 6. The United States received a very small taste of its own medicine today as rioting Trump fanatics temporarily forced their way into the nation's Capitol building, and now the whole nation is freaking out. I am being generous when I say that America was given a very small taste of its own medicine. Unlike the horrific coups and violent uprisings the U.S. routinely orchestrates in non-compliant nations around the world, this one stood exactly zero chance of seizing control of the government. And, 
at the time of this writing, only one person was killed. And we learned shortly after five people were killed. I am also being generous when I say the rioters, quote, forced their way in. DC chose not to increase its police presence in preparation for the protests, despite knowing that they were planned. And there's footage of what appears to be cops actively letting them through a police barricade. There was some fighting between police and protesters, but contrasted with the unceasing barrage of police brutality footage which emerged from Black Lives Matter demonstrations a few months prior, it's fair to say that the police response today was relatively gentle. Predictably, this entirely American disruption has blue checkmarked commentariat shrieking about Vladimir Putin on social media. Just as predictably, it's also got them calling for the censorship of social media. The New York Times has published two new articles titled, quote, The Storming of Capitol Hill Was Organized on Social Media, and, quote, Violence on Capitol Hill is a Day of Reckoning for Social Media, both arguing for more heavy-handed restrictions on speech from Silicon Valley tech giants. In the former NYT's, Shira Frankel writes, quote, the Violence Wednesday was a result of online movements operating in closed social media networks where people believe the claims of voter fraud and of the election being stolen from Mr. Trump, citing the expert analysis of think tank spinmeister Rene DeResta of, quote, Tulsi Gabbard is a Russian asset fame. As usual, no mention is made of DeResta's involvement in the new knowledge scandal in which a Russian interference false flag was staged staged for an Alabama Senate race. Quote, These people are acting because they are convinced an election was stolen, DeResta said. This is a demonstration of the very real-world impact of echo chambers. This has been a striking repudiation of the idea that there is an online and an offline world and that what is said online is in some way kept online, DeResta adds. This narrative, which seeds the idea that an unregulated communication on the internet will lead to violent uprisings, is funny coming from Frankel, who, as a Twitter follower recently observed, wrote a piece in 2018 condemning the Iranian government for restricting protesters' social media access during the demonstrations at that time. Quote, Social media and messaging apps have become crucial to an anti-government demonstrator's around the world, as a means of both organizing and delivering messages to their citizens, Frankel wrote. Not surprisingly, restricting access to such technology has become as important to government crackdowns as the physical presence of the police. In the other article, co-authored by Frankel, Mike Isaac, and Kate Conger, the message is driven home even less subtly. Quote, as pro-Trump protesters stormed the Capitol building on Wednesday and halted the certification of Electoral College votes, the role of social media companies such as Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube in spreading misinformation and being a megaphone for Mr. Trump came under renewed criticism, reads the article, adding, quote, So when violence broke out in Washington on Wednesday, it was, in the minds of longtime critics, the day the chickens came home to roost, for the social media companies. The article reports on U.S. President's temporary suspension of social media privileges for allegedly inciting violence with his posts. 
then discusses the various kinds of disinformation and violent ideation being circulated in Trump discussion forums. Quote, those alternative social media sites were rife with Trump supporters organizing and communicating on Wednesday, New York Times tells us. On Parlay, one trending hashtag was, quote, storm the Capitol. Many Trump supporters on their sites also appeared to believe a false rumor that Antifa, a left-wing movement, was responsible for committing violence at the protests. Side note, that set off a funny back and forth with the people who pretended, or or some may have genuinely believed because they believe conspiracies uh, more easily, that Antifa was behind the breach of the Capitol, and those folks who were actually behind the breach of the Capitol, condemning that, saying, hell no, this was not Antifa, this was us. Quote, we know the social media companies have been lackadaisical at best at stopping extremism from growing on their platforms, Jonathan Greenblatt, director of the Anti-Defamation League, told New York Times. Freedom of expression is not the freedom to incite violence. That is not protected speech. We will likely see many more such articles in the coming days arguing for increased regulation of internet communication to prevent future incidents like today. In and of itself, this won't sound terribly concerning to the average citizen. Nothing wrong with taking steps to prevent people from plotting violence and terrorism on social media, right? But how do you predict what protests are going to be violent? Also, who, who defines what is violent? How do you decide which protests and what political dissent need to be censored and which ones should be permitted to communicate freely? Do you just leave it up to Silicon Valley oligarchs to make the call? Or do you have them consult with the government like they've been doing? Are either of these institutions you trust to regulate what protests are worthy of being permitted to organize online? Because the actual power structures in the United States seem to be interested in simply censoring the internet to eliminate political dissent altogether. 2017 top officials from Facebook, Twitter, and Google were brought before the Senate Judiciary Committee and admonished to come up with policies that will, quote, prevent the fomenting of discord in the United States. World Socialist website reported the following in 2017. Democratic Senator Mazi Hirono of Hawaii demanded for her part that the companies adopt a mission statement expressing their commitment, quote, to prevent the fomenting of discord. The most substantial portion of the testimony took place in the second part of the hearing, during which most senators had left, and two representatives of the U.S. intelligence agencies testified before a room of mostly empty chairs. Clint Watts, a former U.S. Army officer, former FBI agent, and member of the Alliance for Securing Democracy, made the following apocalyptic proclamation, quote, Civil wars don't start with gunshots. They start with words. America's war with itself has already begun. We all must act now on the social media battlefield to quell information rebellions that can quickly lead to violent confrontations and easily transform us into the divided states of America. He added, Stopping the false information artillery barrage landing on social media users 
comes only when those outlets distributing bogus stories are silenced. Silence the guns and the barrage will end. That sounds an awful lot like government officials and operatives telling social media corporations that it's their job to censor communication which could facilitate any kind of unrest, no matter how justified. Do you trust these monopolistic megacorporations to decide whether or not people's dissident speech is acceptable? I don't. As Julian Assange is condemned to remain falsely imprisoned, and the mass media ramp up their case for more imperial narrative control, we are now in a battle for the sovereignty of our very minds. And finally, this piece from EFF.org. EFF is the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Beyond Platforms, Private Censorship, Parlay, and the stack. And I know that people like to call parlay parlor because I don't know. I think they have uh, a natural uh, antipathy towards anything French dating back to at least the uh, US Iraq war when France declined to join and those patriots renamed french fries to freedom fries but i can't see the word p-a-r-l-e-r and not pronounce it parlay this is written by julian nope not julian jillian c york corinne mcsherry and danny o'brien Last week, following riots that saw supporters of President Trump breach and sack parts of the Capitol building, Facebook and Twitter made the decision to give the president the boot. That was notable enough, given that both companies had previously treated the president, like other political leaders, as largely exempt from content moderation rules. Many of the president's followers responded by moving to an alternate platform, Parlay. This week, the response has taken a new turn by targeting infrastructure companies much closer to the bottom of the technical stack, including Amazon Web Services, AWS, and Google's Android and Apple's iOS app stores, decided to cut off service to that alternative platform, for example, not just to an individual, but to an entire site. Parlay has so far struggled to return online partly through errors of its own making, but also because the lower down the technical stack, the harder it is to find alternatives or re-implement what capabilities the internet has taken for granted. Whatever you think of Parlay, these decisions should give you pause. Private companies have strong legal rights under U.S. law to refuse to host or support speech they don't like. But that refusal carries different risks when a group of companies comes together to ensure that forums for speech or speakers are effectively taken offline altogether. The free speech stack, aka free speech choke points. To see the implications of censorship choices by deeper stack companies, let's back up for a minute. As researcher Joan Donovan puts it, quote, at every level of the tech stack, 
Corporations are placed in positions to make value judgments regarding the legitimacy of content, including who should have access, and when, and how. And the decisions made by companies at varying layers of the stack are bound to have different impacts on free expression. At the top of the stack are services like Facebook, Reddit, or Twitter. Platforms whose decisions about who to serve or what to allow are comparatively visible, though still far too opaque to most users. Their responses can be comparatively targeted to specific users and content, and most importantly, do not cut off as many alternatives. For instance, a discussion forum lies close to the top of the stack. If you are booted from such a platform, there are other venues in which you can exercise your speech. These are the sites and services that all users, both content creators and content consumers, interact with most directly. They are also the places people think of when they think of the content itself. Example, I saw it on Facebook. Users are often required to have individual accounts or advantaged if they do. Users may also specifically seek out the sites for their content. The closer to the user end, the more likely it is that sites will have more developed and apparent curatorial and editorial policies and practices. Their, quote, signature styles. Finally, users typically have an avenue, flawed as it may be, to communicate directly with the service. At the other end of the stack are internet service providers, ISPs, like Comcast or AT&T. Decisions made by companies at this layer of the stack to remove content or users raise greater concerns for free expression, especially when there are few, if any, competitors. For example, it would be very concerning if the only broadband provider in your area cut you off because they didn't like what you said online, or what someone else whose name is on the account said. The adage, if you don't like the rules, go elsewhere, doesn't work when there is nowhere else to go. In between are a wide array of intermediaries, such as upstream hosts like AWS, domain name registrars, certificate authorities, content delivery networks, payment processors, and email services. EFF has a handy chart of some of those key links between speakers and their audience. These intermediaries provide the infrastructure for free speech and commerce, but many have only the most tangential relationship to their users. Faced with a complaint, takedown will be much easier and cheaper than a nuanced analysis of given users' speech, much less an analysis of the speech that might be hosted by a company that is a user of their services. So these services are more likely to simply cut a user or platform off than do a deeper review. At the same time, in many cases, both speakers and audiences will not be aware of the identities of these support services, and even if they are, have no independent relationship with them. These services are thus not commonly associated with the speech that passes, passes through them and have no, quote, signature style to enforce. Infrastructure takedowns are equally, if not more, likely to silence marginalized voices. We saw a particularly egregious example of an infrastructure takedown just a few months ago, 
when Zoom made the decision to block a San Francisco State University online academic event featuring prominent activists from Black and South African liberation movements. The advocacy group Jewish Voice for Peace and controversial figure Leila Khalid, inspiring Facebook and YouTube to follow suit. The decision, which Zoom justified on the basis of Khalid's alleged ties to a U.S.-designated foreign terrorist organization, was apparently made following external pressure. Although we have numerous concerns with the manner in which social media platforms like Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter make decisions about speech, we viewed Zoom's decision differently. Companies like Facebook and YouTube, for good or ill, include content moderation as part of the service they provide. Since the beginning of the pandemic in particular, however, Zoom has been used around the world more like a phone company than a platform. And just as you don't expect your phone company to start making decisions about who you can call, you don't expect your conferencing service to start making decisions about who can join your meeting. It is precisely this reason that Amazon's ad hoc decision to cut off hosting to social media alternative parlay in the face of public pressure should be of concern to anyone worried about how decisions about speech are made in the long run. In some ways, the ejection of parlay is neither a novel nor a surprising development. First, it is by no means the first instance of moderation at this level of the stack. Prior examples include Amazon denying service to WikiLeaks and the entire nation of Iran. Second, the domestic pressure on companies like Amazon to disentangle themselves from Parlay was intense. After all, in the days leading up to its removal by Amazon, Parlay played host to outrageously violent threats against elected politicians from its verified users, including lawyer L. Lynn Wood. But infrastructure takedowns nonetheless represent a significant departure from the expectations of most users. For one thing, they are cumulative, since all speech on the internet relies upon multiple infrastructure hosts. If users have to worry about satisfying not only their host's terms and conditions, but also those of every service in the chain, from speaker to audience, even though the actual speaker may not even be aware of all those services or where they draw the line between hateful and non-hateful speech, many users will simply avoid sharing controversial opinions altogether. They are also less precise. In the past, we've seen entire large websites darkened by upstream hosts because of a complaint about a single document posted. More broadly, infrastructure-level takedowns move us further toward a thoroughly locked down, highly monitored web from which a speaker can be effectively ejected at any time. Going forward, we are likely to see more cases that look like Zoom's censorship of an academic panel than we are Amazon cutting off another parlay. Nevertheless, Amazon's decision highlights core questions of our time. Who should decide what is acceptable speech? and to what degree should companies at the infrastructure layer play a role in censorship? At EFF, we think the answer is both simple and challenging. Wherever possible, users should decide for themselves, and companies at the infrastructure layer should stay well out of it. 
The firmest, most consistent approach infrastructure choke points can take is to simply refuse to be choke points at all. They should act to defend their role as a conduit rather than a publisher. Just as law and custom developed a norm that we might sue a publisher for defamation, but not the owner of the building the publisher occupies, we are slowly developing norms about responsibility for content online. Companies like Zoom and Amazon have an opportunity to shape these norms, for the better or for the worse. Internet policy and practice should be user-driven, not crisis-driven. It's easy to say today in a moment of crisis that a service like Parlay should be shunned. After all, people are using it to organize attacks on the U.S. Capitol and on congressional leaders with an expressed goal to undermine the democratic process. But when the crisis has passed, pressure on basic infrastructure as a tactic will be reused inevitably against unjustly marginalized speakers and forums. This is not a slippery slope nor a tentative pre prediction. We have already seen this happen to groups and communities that have far less power and resources than the President of the United States and the backers of his cause. And this facility for broad censorship will not be lost on foreign governments who wish to silence legitimate dissent either. Now that the world has been reminded that the infrastructure can be commandeered to make decisions to control speech, calls for it will increase and principled objections may fall to the wayside. Over the coming weeks, we can expect to see more decisions like these from companies at all layers of the stack. Just today, Facebook removed members of the Ugandan government in advance of Tuesday's elections in the country out of concerns for election manipulation. Some of the decisions that these companies make may be well-researched, while others will undoubtedly come as a result of external pressure and at the expense of marginalized groups, as covered in the earlier story about Facebook considering to uh, include Zionism in its definition of anti-Semitism. The core problem remains, regardless of whether we agree with an individual decision, these decisions overall have not and will not be made democratically and in line with the requirements of transparency and due process. Instead, they are made by a handful of individuals and a handful of companies, the most distanced and least visible to the most internet users. Whether you agree with those decisions or not, you will not be a part of them, nor be privy to their considerations. And unless we dismantle the increasingly centralized choke points in our global digital infrastructure, we can anticipate an escalating political battle between political factions and nation-states to seize control of their powers. And we know historically that people who already have the power have uh, the overwhelming uh, ability to win those battles. And that will wrap up this episode of You Can't Be Neutral. Lots of battles out there on the social media front, on the free speech front, and, and things we need to be very careful of. Lots of battles to come on the surveillance front 
and a lot we need to keep our eyes and ears open to and fight against when they go counter to the ability of people to share ideas, come together, and fight for a better world. Remember, you can check out all the back episodes of You Can't Be Neutral at youcantbeneutral.com. You can follow on Twitter at YCBneutral. And you can check out this and all my podcasts, including Frack You Very Much, a fracking terrible podcast about fracking. And People Are Revolting, my daily podcast about people in the streets and uh, on social media fighting for a better world, as well as Polyrical, my political music podcast. Just released a brand new episode of Polyrical today. That episode is about prison abolition and features the music of Jesse Jett. Jesse Jett has a fantastic new album out called Inauguration Gift that just came out in January of 2021. That follows his album from last year called Virus. Great music from Jesse Jett. You should check that out. You can hear all those podcasts playing uh, in random order, going back for hundreds of episodes for some of them on movingtrainradio.com. And now, a moment of Zen. Thanks for listening. I remember during the Vietnam War, I keep going back because that's, you know, there are certain historical moments when learning is more intense than at any other period. I mean, this is one of those moments, too, right now, after September 11th. But Vietnam was one of those moments when learning is compressed uh, into a short span of time and place. And one of the things we learned about during those years was about experts and about when the war started and people would ask questions, why are we there? <laughs> Say, well, listen to the experts. The experts would get on television and tell us why we're there. And I remember the British actor, an artist, right? Actors are artists. Uh, the British actor, Peter Ustinov, spoke out against the war in Vietnam. And then somebody said, Ustinov, he's an actor. <laughs> he's not an expert. And Ustinov replied, there are experts in little things, but there are no experts in big things. There are experts in this fact and that fact and that fact, but there are no moral experts. It's important to remember that, that all of us, whatever we do, have the right to make moral decisions about the world and undeterred by the cries that will come up, oh, you, you don't know, you're not an expert. These people up there, they know. Well, it takes only a little bit of history to realize how dangerous it is to think that the people who run the country know what they're doing. So the word transcendent comes to mind when I think of the role of the artist in dealing with the issues of the day. And, and I use the word transcendent to suggest that the role of the artist 
is to transcend the given wisdom, to transcend the word of the establishment, to transcend the orthodoxy, to transcend, uh, to go beyond, to escape uh, what is handed down by the government, or what is said in the press, or what is said on television. Uh, because there are people in the arts and people in, in other professions uh, who think, uh, well, uh, yes, let's get involved. But let's get involved in the way we are told to be involved. And then you will see the artists and the, and the other people in professions uh, getting in line in the way that uh, uh, people are expected to get in line when the president says, this is what we must do. And all everybody else in politics echoes that. And this is we, what we must do.